Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Carter. It is Friday. It is 1 p.m. on the West Coast. We're thrilled that you're here. With me, as always, is Cynthia Kale. How are you, Cynthia? Hey, I'm looking forward to Christmas holidays and all kinds of fun stuff to eat. I'm, I'm just excited That's- for this year to be over, right? Like, this is just, I'm done. I'm ready for 2021. This has just been a tumultuous year. I, I will say, though, you know, I was reflecting earlier with my wife. Like, I feel like the, I've got really lucky. You know, I was at WeWork, and then we got I got laid off, but I found some a gig pretty quickly. So I feel fortunate. And so as a result, like, my wife and I were talking about what can we do big to give to others? So I think 2021 for us as a family is going to be the, the season of or the year of giving back. Yeah, for sure. I think that everybody's um, in COVID fatigue for sure. And, you know, I've tried to give as much as I can this year, um, knowing that food banks are stretched, yep. you yeah. know, small businesses are stretched. Um, some of those businesses aren't running. Yeah. So this is exciting to have to do this podcast and be able to talk to other founders yeah. that are I, trying to make it through. Absolutely. And I'm thrilled this week. If you are, are new to the program, welcome. Every week we get to talk to amazing founders that have that one extra thing on their resume. And that's service to our country. And this week, we have a local person to Oregon, which I'm so excited about, by the way. It's John Sanford from Caber Carter Construction. Welcome, sir. Hello there. How's it going, man? <laughs> I'm well caffeinated for everyone's approval. I'm doing great. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> nice. Well, that's what you do in Oregon. I mean, we're just known for coffee, and so there's no shortage, that's for sure. Coffee and beer. Coffee sure. and beer. That's right. We love it here. Uh, you know, so I'm thrilled that you're you're in Milwaukee, Oregon. We were just talking. I'm in Westland, Oregon, which is literally right across the river uh, yeah. from each other. Um, but I, we, we start each show to talk about like your military experience. So let, let's chat about... What branch you got into and, and why? Like, what caused you to want to serve? Sure. A uh, little funny story. Uh, I'll take you back in time, back to uh, before 2001, so before September 11th. Um, uh, this might sound crazy, but I promise it's all true. Uh, I was a hippie kid living in a commune in the middle of the woods with my family. That's not um, uncommon if you if you live in Oregon. Our, the WeWork co-founder lived in a commune down in Eugene, so it seems like that's not an uncommon thing here. There you go. Yeah, I always have this, you know, I always worry about what I say to other people because you get some people from the East Coast, yeah. you know, and they look at me like, are you out of your mind? It's like, yeah, well, it's the truth. Yeah. You know, still, you know, stranger than fiction. But yeah, just a, a little hippie, little hippie commune kind of thing that they started. And so my rebellion was going to the military and, uh, it didn't, my parents separated when I was younger. And so I kind of looked for that male figure. And, um, uh, anyway, so I joined, I couldn't get, uh, I wanted to go infantry and I couldn't get her to my parents to sign on to that. So I signed on to national guard and, um, they were okay with that. Went out and did my training and came back to Fort Lewis, uh, lost in the woods, um, well, excuse me, Leonard Wood and then Lewis, but uh, Fort Leonard Wood, so lost in the woods in Missouri, and mm-hmm. then came home and then started school and uh, went from there. So, yeah, that's how it all got started. 
And and when you were in, what what was your role? Like, what did you what did you do when you got there? You you said you didn't want to do infantry, but what did I, I wanted to badly? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what what did you end up doing while you were there? Well, uh, so in high school we built cars and we raced them. Here in Oregon, I don't know what it's like for the rest other states or whatnot, but we had kind of carte blanche opportunities in high school. So we built race cars and raced them down at nice. Portland International Raceway. Um, and so I decided I want to be a mechanic, a diesel mechanic. And so I did construction equipment mechanic, 62 Bravo, um, when I went in and that was, uh, uh, it was an okay school. Uh, it was pretty quick. Honestly, they just want to get you out in the field and really the experience in the field would have trained you more. Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah. So that's what I trained for. Um, and I came home and immediately went into college and that was kind of my goal, uh, is to be a better human out of the entire process too. How did you get your parents to even sign off on you joining the military? I mean, I know it's National Guard, but coming from, you know, a background where I've known hippie communes <laughs> that yeah. lived, you know, out, out in, in the wild, um, how did you end up getting them to approve it? Uh, Cynthia, that's a great question. Uh, okay, so it was the biggest guilt trip of their lives. So <laughs> oh, This is a good story I, coming. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so, you know, <clears throat> they built this house with their own two hands. My dad uh, was also a carpenter, and that's how I kind of got it back into the work, which I'm at now. Um, but he was also a carpenter, and they had this really awesome relationship. Um, you know, they wanted to build that hippie commune, and they went for it. And there's not a lot of people these days that can say they've done that. And so they mm-hmm. bought property, built this house with their own two hands and whatnot. But the story is, is that at the end of all that, she was a teacher. He was a carpenter. They didn't make a ton of money. You know, they're not not upper, you know, anything necessarily. but they did pretty well for themselves in that they had made a really good foundation for a family. So with all that being said, when I was 17 years old and rebelling and trying to get away from my family and whatnot, I finally sat my mom down and said, listen, you've got custody of me. And at the end of the day, you're a teacher and you have two kids. What's your goal of making us having, giving us the successes that you prayed and, and told us that were so important. What, what was your plan for that? And she goes, well, I think you guys have figured it out. And I said, that's not a plan. That's the hope. And I said, your plan is for us to go into is to figure out a way to get into school, be better educated. You have your master's degree. Dad is, you know, has a good degree as well. And I'll get into that later. But um, I think my best path is to take care of myself now. And I think it's time. I think it's time that you can let go of the reins and let me take care of myself. Because honestly, if you don't have a path, I have to find one for myself. And financially, we're not set up for me to go to school and you to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then I we said, hey, and I'll end by saying this is just that said, hey, look at all these times when we didn't have enough throughout our life. And we had a lot of love, but we didn't have enough food. We didn't have enough this. We had enough Mm -hmm. this. It's time for me to make sure I take care of my family if I have one in the future and take care of them. And I need you to let me do that. What um, What about the process of going through boot camp and getting out into the field surprised you at all. I mean, you grew up in this com- commune, but which is very community focused, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And you go yeah. you go into another sort of community focused organization where it's, you know, this sort of fraternity of people. Uh what but what surprised you about any of it that you experienced? Yeah. This might be a little harsh to say these days, but I didn't understand the like the deep crevices of racism in the United States. I was very protective when I was a kid. You know, we, we, I literally, my parents taught me that black means beautiful. 
So anyone says, oh, this is a black person. I just, oh, it's a beautiful person. That's awesome. Not, not even the color black. We, I didn't understand that black meant their skin color. Like right. it didn't connect. So it was that, you know, it was that far removed from reality that I mm-hmm. had to come back into and to, to copes with. And with that being said, there's another piece to this I want to say really quick, quickly is that as much as my parents were against war and everything else, they also liked history. And so my brother and I were into Civil War reenacting. Hmm. Um, I know this is weird, but just stick with me for a minute. There's <laughs> a group here in Oregon called the Northwest Civil War Reenactors Council, NW, what, Northwest, NWCNC. Anyways, they, there's a group here and they would, and a whole bunch of really intelligent people that were curious about our history and whatnot. And uh, they would reenact the Civil War. They, and so um that was part of kind of what we got into and they had a lot of old guys imagine this right is that you have this national park or state park and then a whole bunch of guys dress up in uniforms and they shoot at each other with muskets you know Mm -hmm. that black pepper black powder in it and uh and those people are usually ex-army people yeah so for as much as my mom mom didn't want me to get close to that she put me right in the heart of it (laughs) with these with these reenactments so i ended up listening to these people for a long time. And the guy that led the group was an old special forces operator. And, you know, I just said, Hey, what do I need to do to be the best? You know, when I was a kid, whatever language I used at the time, which is probably idiotic by now terms, (laughs) but you know, um, and he just said, listen, you need to be, go through every school you can be the best you can listen as much as you can and be as physical as you can. So that the experience in basic training and through training is more mental rather than physical. Cause if it's both, it's hard as physical and you can do it and and i took that to heart and i did a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of physical stuff before i went in and i was uh 300 pt on top of my class for everything physical um and so that wasn't the hard part for me whatsoever hmm. um but uh yeah the racism you know that was really tough really seeing how deep america was divided on that and then on top of that just seeing kind of the mental portion was tough for a lot of other people for me, I kind of dealt with a lot of crap when I was a kid. So I was just, I was ready for it. I said, oh, is this the hardest you got? <laughs> said, All right, fair enough. So anyways, that's yeah. kind of the backstory. There. And, and how long did you spend in, in service? Well, a total, I'd spent eight years. So yeah. I went in, did my first two years with training and active time. And then I got out and did National Guard. Um, and then, uh, then I was deployed and did almost two years there. I think 18 months total. 18 or 20 months. And then after that, then I was uh, inactive, ready reserve IRR. And I decided instead of doing that to sign up and do a special operations group, which is civil affairs, uh, 364 civil affairs here in town. Um, And uh, I worked with this civil affairs group for uh, two years. And then I ended it. So eight years total uh, in service, um, but kind of different pieces. So active national guard and reserve. Yeah. That's a pretty comprehensive uh, experience there. Like, can you tell me a bit about? Yeah, to me, just watching your journey, it seems as if, um, just from an outsider looking in, that there would be a huge amount of like culture shock going from growing up where you did and then entering into a very disciplined, structured environment, and then exiting that. Did you find that you had uh, had to adjust? Yeah, that's a really good point. my adjustment was rough. <laughs> I, I, I'm a very, you know, from where I grew up, I'm a very individualistic person. Um, I, 
you know, from, from being a hippie kid, you know, the, the interesting piece about liberals and in general, like deeper liberals, like hippies and whatnot, is that as, for as much of like this idea that it's um, hippie utopia and we treat everyone in kind and stuff like that, they're very judgmental and very judgmental in that, like what's right is right and everything else is wrong, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the same thing. If you look at conservatives compared to liberals, there's a lot of people on very deep ends of the spectrum that have the same kinds of feelings. Right. They're not they're just for different things. Right. So um, I have a pretty I'm 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 a hard charger. Uh, if I think it's right, I'm not going to back down from it. And that led me in some ways really well. And in some ways, it hasn't been the best. You know, it's hard on relationships mm-hmm. and uh, it's not easily fair to a partner um, to say this has to be this way. It's like, no, if you want to have a relationship, you got to be reasonable. But, you know, in business. And not only in business, in politics, which I'll get to in a minute, it really works out because you can lead people. Yeah, um, I was going to say there's a certain personality trait of every entrepreneur. And that is, it's actually, and this isn't a bad thing, it's the same thing that makes them unhirable as an employee. (laughs) Because they have such hard uh, opinions and, and this is the way it's got to be. And this is the way it's going to work. It's going to work. But the extra piece to that is yes, they are opinionated, but they know how to lead others. Right. To your point. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Joshua, great point, man. Very good point. You know, uh, I, um, have you ever heard of, uh, David Lutberger? He's a, a consultant. He does a uh, construction consulting, but he's also just a fabulous person. And I did, I hired him for some consulting for my company. One of the first things he said, he goes, I am essentially unhirable now. And I said, well, what does that mean for you? And he goes, well, I've, I have too many opinions. And on top of that, I'm willing to follow them through. Yep. And I, I think that if you find people that the scary part is to be an entrepreneur is not only do you have opinions, and not only are you interested in an idea, but you're willing to follow it through to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's not enough money in the bank account to cover your bills, when you don't have enough gas to, to make your truck run when you can't pay for food to take care of your kids and whatnot, you have to make it happen and you have to run a company. You know, you have to make sure that your employees are fed and everything else is taken care of or else it all fails. And there's something about that, that at the end of the day, you're willing to put everything on the line to to do whatever you believe. And that is for other people, that is insane for other people in a bureaucratic system. They can't imagine that. And for me, I can't imagine not putting everything on the line for what I believe. Yeah, it's a, it's a ton of responsibility. You know, I, I, what I've noticed, too, is entrepreneurs often feel like we're responsible for everybody and everything. And, you know, there's a time when you need to go, OK, hold on a sec. Let me take a, a step back, um, because if something doesn't work, if you're at the top and you're, you're running this company, often you feel responsible. Well, if it didn't work, it's ultimately my responsibility. It's the same thing with taking care of your employees. You know, if you didn't win that contract or yeah. you have to let somebody go, that's just a very hard feeling. It's a very hard place to be to have to take that action. That's exactly right. It's a deep, deep amount of responsibility, deep amount of pain either way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What makes yeah. what makes veteran entrepreneurs different too, and we talked about this in other episodes, is that there's this innate uh, sense of duty, but also this uh, feeling that they don't want to let anybody down, and they take it harder than others, right? So, um, you know, in, in tech companies, if they take investment and that that investment doesn't pan out, 
the veteran entrepreneur will take it much differently than say, uh, you know, a 30 year old kid straight out of Stanford MBA program who just failed his first startup and he's just ready for the next one. Like he's just, it's just a speed bump in the road of whatever his next adventure is. Whereas veteran entrepreneurs, they tend to take that stuff a little bit more uh, to heart. You know, Josh, that's a really good point. And I, and I like you saying that because I think one of the things that veterans have and people who have been in the military before is that we know what not having freedom looks like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we know, we know what, what's on the line. And I think there's a lot of people have just taken a lot of stuff for granted. And in the military, you lose all your freedoms, all of it, right? you know, and your time, what you wear, where you are, what you eat, all of it, you're institutionalized essentially. So having that freedom and seeing other people squander it, it's just infuriating. But on, on top of that, like uh, you, you're, you're hitting into a really valid point and, and it's a question of, of standards of living. Are you willing to have a job that fulfills your life and the way you need, or is your life just, is your job just going to fulfill? Uh, how does it go? So right. is, is your job there to make your life work? Is your life there? And it just works in with your job. And I argue that personally, my personality, regardless of where I'm at, whether it's construction, yeah. you know, yeah, whether yeah. it's exactly what you're saying is going to be the same. I'm going to send thank you cards. I'm going to bring a bottle of wine when we close the deal. I'm, I'm going to do the right thing, even if it costs me extra money. I, I just, I have to, I could, I can't look someone in the eyes and say, you know, I, oh, this is just the way it is. Like, no, it isn't. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it isn't. I want to get back onto your transition. So you eventually you transitioned out of the military. What was that transition for you? Like, as we just sort of talked about it, you get kind of institutionalized, you get kind of used to a, a routine, but for you, it sounded like that was pretty easy to get over once you transitioned out. Yeah, there's pieces to it. I would say that, um, you know, there's kind of a functional way you live your life, whether you're in school, when you get out of the military, if you have a plan, it's a lot easier. So if you're in school or if you have a job lined up or if you're going to go back into whatever trade you were before, you know, if you have some type of a path, it's a lot easier. I had a pretty clear path, but it was a little bit funnier than other people. I wanted to help veterans because I thought they were getting screwed. So I got into politics immediately. Um, and I went back to school. So I was, I got back on a Saturday that next Monday I was in class, mm. um, for college. And, uh, I, I had zero break whatsoever. And that in some ways was good because you know, I had great grades. I was passionate. I had a topic to talk about. Um, and I think I don't want to miss that point. A lot of people in their lives live to be able to have something to say. And I, I didn't have to worry about that any longer. I had, you know, my opinions, I had my experiences. I just wanted to get past, past school so it can support me in my life. Um, so anyways, yeah, I transitioned right into school. I was, and then also I got hired in uh, at a work study position to work in a congressional office. And I was a high octane madman in a wool suit, sitting there like sweating, mm -hmm. sitting at a desk where, you know, just weeks earlier, I was in, in a full battle rattle, you know, dialed in and, and, you know, ready for whatever happened. And, uh, yeah, it was a weird transition. <laughs> it was a weird scenario. I think but, being uh, busy kind of helps you, you know, adjust. You're literally thrown in the deep end with no time to really think, but then on the downside to it is whatever stress, transitional stress you have, it still kind of creeps up, you know? So were there any times where you felt like, maybe I need to take a step back or did you start to see any of those transitional stress symptoms? Oh my God. I did everything you're not supposed to do when you get home. And I bought a house. First thing I did is I bought a house. Hey, 
what else can I do? Buy a house. So the next thing I bought a brand new car. Right. <laughs> and so, and then I got married. Right. And so right away I, I ticked off like the three or four things you're not supposed to do when you get home. Right. <laughs> Take it easy. Don't spend all your money. Um, don't marry that girl that you might've been partially dating before deployment. who has been thinking <laughs> oh, no. about you. Don't do that. And so I did all those things wrong. Um, I had a small company at the time. I've always done my own business in one shape or form or another, but I had a screen printing company. And so, you know, then I was kind of restarting my company. And so, you know, everything was fresh and new, which it kind of felt like I had a new lease on life. But man, I mean, if now I saw someone doing that, I would pull them aside and beat them senseless and be like, no, <laughs> just stop. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and it all failed. You know, I mean, it, you know, those, those things that you tell people like don't do are for a reason because there's a lot of experience behind that. So, you know, I lost, I ended up getting a divorce within a year, getting a oh, divorce, man. losing the house, oh, losing man. all the cars, losing my business. And I was in school, but of course my school suffered because, you know, I'm going through all this stress. Um, and all of a sudden my whole system of support is gone. And now I'm a disabled combat vet, highly aggressive without that company to run, mm. without uh, without doing really well in school. So I'm not having success there without the house and the cars and all the things that I said I was going to give myself during deployment when I get out and live my life. Yeah. So I, I had to then ask myself, like, what what does this mean? And um, I want to make this really clear. I almost ate a gun at that time. Oh, you know, there's a definitely a time I asked myself, like, do I want to keep going? Um, and I did. Yeah. I mean, like I sat back and at one time and I was like, well, beer tastes great. And you know, <laughs> I live in the Northwest and like, no, I'm there's still, you know, and being single now means I can date and that's pretty fun. Honestly, when it works out, like, yeah, why, why would I lose out on all that? Why yeah. would I lose out on a good life? And so, you know, I made that decision, but, uh, thank God I did. Life's been pretty amazing, even challenging as it might be now. Um, with everything, I would not change it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was really stressful. <laughs> really, so what, really what, stressful. Would you, what would you say were the key ingredients that turned you around from that difficult time? Um, hmm. Or, or a, another way to phrase it is, you know, what motivated you to get you to say, to not, I to love life myself. enough. Yeah. yeah. Basically yeah. to say what yeah, well, I need to honest. move forward. Yeah. yeah. Not to eat a gun. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and I hate to be so rude about it and so direct, but I hopefully someone listening to your podcast goes, oh, okay, I don't want to eat my gun because yeah. of it, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, to be frank. Um, yeah, I mean, there was, I think there were two or three things, right? The first thing is that I didn't want to let my family down, right? I still had a hippie mom and dad who loved me more than life itself, um, and I couldn't hurt them. I could not do that to them. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong, I felt like my whole world was crashing down upon me. And I felt like I was underneath. I felt like I was Atlas, you know, trying to hold the weight of the world on my shoulders. Um, uh, so that's one thing. I would say the next thing is, is that um, I had a couple of good buddies, you know, that were close. I had uh, <laughs> this buddy named Zach, and hopefully he listens to this one day. Uh, he was an Israeli Defense Force sniper who was at Portland State, where I was going to. And we had, uh, we were going through, you know, Part of my story is that I got frustrated with what was going on, and I uh, I ended up um, running for student body president at my university to help mm -hmm. veterans because they were kind of getting screwed, and I won. Yeah, um, nice. And I was like, oh, what did I just do? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
terrible mistake. Like, you know, 27 year old disabled combat vet who's working in Congress on the side, trying to work in a system where you have 18, 19 and 20 year olds are making decisions based on women's breast sizes and how they like people or not. And they were working with a budget. And this is not an exaggeration of 15 and a half million dollars at the time. So they give these kids 15 and a half million bucks as student leadership to be able to do pretty much whatever they want with their whim. Mm. Um, and for me, that blew my mind because it's like, how many people can we help with this money? Like, mm. let's get everyone a bus pass. You know, let's get everyone options to be able to get to school. Um, but yeah, so I guess coming back to the whole suicide point is that I had a buddy who had been through things that were much harder than me, who had lost his family as well, who had been shot at, you know, was way more hardcore than I was. Mm-hmm. And he just said, hey, you know, don't fucking do anything stupid. You know, life is way better than you think. And uh, I'm glad he said that, you know. And so um, those are the things. And then I guess the last point I'll make is just I had a mission and I haven't let go of that mission yet. And that mission was to go back to Iraq and to sit down with people and try to understand what the hell that war was about. Mm. Apologize as much as I could and to try to ameliorate my sins for being there. Um, And I know conservative or liberal, depending on where people are at, I felt really convicted for going to that war. It didn't make any damn sense to me. Yeah. Um, So I've since kept that in mind. I've worked with the Iraqi Society of Oregon, Dr. Bayer Booty, very amazing human being. And uh, I I intend to make good on that promise to figure that out. But I had a mission and that, you know, if I would have hurt myself or if I would have not followed through, then how many other people who have just gone through a war? I mean, shit, I'm I'm worried about losing a house. They lost a goddamn country. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, how many people lost their children? And I here I am complaining about not having my nice car like. It's amazing. It's amazing the context you can have when you are traveled. I did this when I was in um, I was in the Navy, and I was in during a time that wasn't wartime at all. But we went to places like Karachi, Pakistan, and Djibouti, Africa, and saw real poverty—not poverty you see here in America, but real poverty. When we're throwing away UHT milk, which is the non-dairy milk, and they're pulling it out of the dumpster because it might be the first thing they drank in three weeks. It's you, when you see that it 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 one it tears your heart out because you're so young when you see that kind of stuff. The other part is it just really makes you understand and appreciate what you have back at home. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. John, I'm, we're going to take a quick break if you don't mind. Yep, sounds yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. Uh, you've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast. We've been listening. We talked to John Sanford of Caber Carter Construction. We'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. 
Thanks for listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. We're talking to John Sanford of Caber Carter Construction. Uh, John, you know, all of this that we've been covering has been really amazing, and I'm really just appreciative of your openness. I want to talk a little bit about the construction business because this is a, a fairly new business for you, right? It's about three years old. What led you into this? Yeah, it's a good question. I appreciate you asking it. Um, we So uh, my dad was a carpenter and I had worked with him a little bit when I was young and I really loved that work. Um, I even actually, we sold the shop out in Damascus. We still have property out there in the shop out there. We don't have any more of the tools. He moved out his tools, but we still have the shop. And you know, you can still smell like the sawn wood and whatnot. And I remember that when I was a kid. So when I came back, um, the transition to having my own company, the way that happened is that I came back, got through school, got hired on to work in Congress, uh, worked for uh, a senator's office, a United States senator's office for several years. Um, and then honestly, I started to get sick, uh, emotionally and mentally sick. I listened to a whole bunch of suicide calls every day and um, tried mm-hmm. to fix, yeah, I tried to fix uh, policy. I thought in my own arrogant way that I could make a major difference there in DC. And um, I couldn't, I, I just couldn't change it. The Senate and the House, they were in gridlock. They were fighting with the president all the time, back and forth. Nothing was getting done and people weren't getting help. Now, with that being said, we passed the post 9-11 GI Bill, which is the most significant change to the GI Bill since it was born back in the, the March of the marchers of 32, um, which is a really cool story. Anyways, to get back to construction, the way it all happened is that uh, um, I got out of that congressional office. I started lobbying down in this, down in the state for veterans issues in the Oregon military museum. Um, we got that funded uh, not as much as we had want, but we got it, I think three and a half million bucks um, to get it going. And then once that kind of project was done, then I was looking for my next project. And my brother said, hey, why don't you work with me at Intel? And I tried that. And holy hell, did that not work? <laughs> um, I can't tell animal. you. Yeah, it's just, it, I can, you know, I can match wits and intelligence with some of the engineers, um, which is interesting because those engineers are PhD engineers, some of the top people from India yeah. and from all around the world um, coming to work at Intel. In fact, Intel and that couple of square miles has the highest amount of PhDs in the world in those couple of square miles. Um, so a really a lot of brains in there, but you get stuck. I was working in a clean room and you get stuck in a bunny suit, which is, you know, full down, up and down all your hands. Everything's covered. You only have like a three by five slit around your eyeballs, which is open, which you have safety glasses on over the top of. Um, I got, and there's no natural light. There's nothing. And it's not physical. You sit around and do nothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like an isolation chamber in some ways. Um, I'm chuckling I, I because I, I, I had a telecom background long ago, and one of our clients was KLA Tencor, which is a fab. They make the inspection equipment. So I, a lot of times I had to get in these bunny suits. So I'm laughing because when you just said that, it took me back to those, you know, clean rooms with the lifted tile and, oh, my God. So fun. It's, when when you get into it and you and it's new and it's novel, it's not bad. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like oh, this is interesting, and they have you know clean air, the cleanest air in the world. Yep. You know, and it's really interesting, and you know you can't have a particulates in the air else that'll hurt. You know, whatever wafers are and whatnot. So getting into it and having a lot of money in the bank account, those are all really interesting things. Yep. However, if you take a back step and say, well, what am I? I'm I'm a, I'm a human being needs light and vitamin D 
um, you know, and I want to do things that are important. If, and if everything you do during the day makes no visible change and doesn't do anything that you can see, what's the point? And if it's just for money, what's the point? And I think most veterans that I know, some of them just say, I want money and I'm going to go for it. I'm going to get every toy I want and do the fun things that I want. And that, you know, more power to them. Yeah. Those people are great. Um, and I've seen a lot of veterans to just say, I've already, you know, I've pushed myself past the limit for a lot of things. I signed that check that included my life, you know, to the military. And now I want to live a good life. You know, I've given my service. I'm done with that. You know, yeah. and now I can, I can live the life I want to live. And I'm more of that latter category. And I just sat back one day and I said, this is miserable. And I hate the people here. <laughs> and, and they're not bad people. I just didn't, I just didn't fit. Right. And, um, and I'm way too independent of a person. And in fact, I'll make a very quick story of it. I, uh, um, I started to research all the things that they were telling me and some of it was wrong. And so I made an internal website that kind of like cited all the things <laughs> that needed to get fixed on the tools. And then I presented it at one of our meetings and said, Hey, I've been listening here for a year, you know, or however many months, here's the items that, you know, weren't necessarily correct. I wanted to try to help you guys out, get it all dialed in. Here's an interior website that have already passed through security they can update each one of these things here's each one of the tools is all the chemicals that they're using and this is how we can update the manual so that we can now do it right and um that was the wrong thing to say <laughs> <laughs> i got i built i painted the biggest red target on my back yeah as all possible because i didn't play along i was like oh let's just do this right let's fix it let's make it work yeah so um, they helped me make that decision to leave. <laughs> so when you, again, that's another trait of an entrepreneur, 100%. you know, you, you see what needs to be done and you're like, let me roll up my sleeves and get it done. But unfortunately yeah. what ends up happening is if a company just wants robots, <laughs> they don't want anybody to, to, to make things better, to make, you know, to outshine anyone, then you, you just don't fit. And it's like a square peg in a round hole a lot of times. And the only thing that does fit is doing your own thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when you're, you, you're you're so right about that. Yeah, absolutely. When you started this business, did you have customers already lined up that you knew this was going to be an easy transition for you, or is it just like I'm going to start it and then let's go find some people? Yeah, thank you for helping me get back on track. No um, worries. Uh, yeah. So the way it all started is that I, I left Intel, and then a brother from another mother said, "Hey, you know, I'm over here doing this job. I know you've done you know some carpentry stuff in the past." are you willing to do this? Would you want to work with me? And I renovated my house when I had bought a house and stuff like that. And I said, sure. Yeah, we'll check it out. And so I had, you know, tools and whatnot. And we ended up working for a commercial development firm downtown and we did all sorts of jobs with them. One of our jobs that we did with them that helped spur the start of the company was we um, did this job site down on six and Davis on the West side, which was uh, old Bing's dynasty. And, and, Josh, if you remember this, it used to be that area, Old Town Chinatown, was like the slums of Portland. Yep. Um, and it had, and it, actually it's getting back that way in these days, but um, it was, jeez, uh, uh, what is it, um, a strip club for a while, and yep. it was like a warehouse, and, you know, <laughs> large open cavities in Portland and a strip club, what would happen there? Who knows, <laughs> right? Um, it, was, it was, so it wasn't the best of all places, so we right. renovated it, got it through, and the city was so happy they gave us the Demure Award, which is the best historic renovation in the city of Portland award wow. for that project. Wow. Um, and so I sat back looking at this project and there was nothing on that project that wasn't comprehensible to me. So there's nothing that was outside of the scope of what I could figure out. And 
the project itself was just large enough in scope that we did something that was valuable for the community. And once I realized that, I said, you know, the, the work that got done on the job site was by me and my and a couple other people. And I said, why, why am I not doing this for myself? Yeah. Why, why, why am I having this, you know, this company we're working for? Why are we doing this? And I asked the person I was working with, I said, Hey, um, how much do you think they got paid to do this? <laughs> and he said, well, 30, 40,000 at least yeah. for the project. And we ran through the numbers and I said, how much would we get paid if it's only two or three of us doing this exact same job? And he said, well, cut that in half. And so I would say, talking 15 to twenty thousand dollars each to do this one project that we got done in 10 weeks he's like yeah and i said sign me up yeah you know <laughs> why yeah. are we doing now that was one of the dumbest decisions i made at that time but um at that time it sounded good <laughs> you know? um i've had to learn my lessons for sure but um yeah anyway so that's how that all started so i started this company called caber carter and it's actually a, a joke um the name is and so the co-owner and me, so the other guy and I that started the company, um, he did the Highland Games out in Gresham. So, Josh, you've probably done this, seen this before. Yep. Um, in all throughout city straight in the United States, um, there are these things called Highland Games where people dress up in kilts and run around and enjoy their Scottish heritage and drink a lot of beer. And one of the one of the events is called the Caber Toss, and it's this big pole that people <laughs> throw up on their shoulder and run around and try to toss it end over end. Yeah. Um, so he had done that years, year in and year out. And so he got to name his his half of the company was Caber. Carter is a family name on my mom's side. And what that means is that uh, um, literally carters are people that cart things around in a cart. So the background joke to the whole company was that he throws things around. And I'm the one that has to run around and clean it up. <laughs> so, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Caber Carter. That's yeah. how we started it. And then it sounds like a law firm or something, you know, really nice. But, you know, it's just two knuckleheads that love carpentry, <laughs> that do really good work that, you know, love carpentry in the area and love the Northwest and been here throughout the entire time. And, and our dads met back in 1980 wow. in a carpentry shop together. Oh, so his neat. dad and my dad were carpenters together, and then we started the company together. So That's awesome. Yeah. What so are... that development company, sorry, let me just throw this in real quick. Yeah, yeah. A development company we were working with, those are my first clients. So I just said, we're spinning off our own company. I think we can do better work in a better time frame with cheaper prices. And I think this is going to be better for you. You've already worked with us. You've seen what our ethic is, our work ethic. And uh, hopefully if that's something you like, let us know. And they said, yeah, just jump into the next project. And we did. We did three or four projects for them. We got all the work done. And yeah, that was that was how we started the company. Your website has a lot of the portfolio work, including the one you were just talking about. And it's beautiful work. I mean, it's really phenomenal stuff that you do. Would, when you go into a project, do you have an idea, a sense of what it's going to look like? Or is it something that you work with the client and... That's their design, and you just sort of execute. Talk us through that that piece of it. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think a lot of the times you get almost a sterile feeling when you work with someone. Yeah. Where it's they say, "Let me get a set of plans, and we'll perform the set of plans." And and there's this really interesting place between technician and craftsman that a lot of people fall into. So, and and there's a good reason for both, by the way. Craftsman is what they're pushing throughout the United States. Let's bring craft back and all this other stuff. However, the more craft you have, the less money you make. The more technician you are, the more hyper laser focused you are on one task at a time. You get it done. You get it done, you know, as precisely as you can based on best practices, based on your knowledge. That's where you make money. So if it's flooring, you do flooring. Excellent. If you do, um, you know, whatever the project is for carpentry, if you know what that is and you can scope it out well, 
you have to create excellence in everything you do. And you always have to make it a little bit better or way better than they expect. They need to walk in and be blown away every single time. If you can't do it, you don't take the job. Hmm. So that's how each one of those jobs came to be. And that's how I do my jobs now. I've said no to more people than I've said yes to. Um, I don't say yes to a lot of clients unless I get a good feel from them. It's a good scope. They have a good budget. They, I know that they can afford it. I don't want to put anyone in a place where they have really good, high quality work and then they can't pay for it. That's just a terrible position to be in. Right. So um, with all that being said, there's just one last piece of craftsmanship that you have to add in. And I would say that's maybe one tenth of 1% of how you do it. So there has to be really good people that know what they're doing that are really damn good at it. They can do it in a short time frame and make it very precise and make it very clean and to code. And actually I, I argue it needs to be to a set of best practices, which is kind of my whole jam these days. But um, uh, that's a technician. And then you can add a little bit of craft into it, but you need to get the work done. So I can scope out a project, but the most important thing is, and I think everyone would agree, success is getting the job done on time and on budget. And if you can do that, people are way more happy than trying to make it look pretty all the time. Um, pretty, you can make happen, absolutely, but that usually costs a lot of money. So, um, you know, get the project done, and then you add in those little qualities that make it pretty at the very end. Or make, not just pretty, but make it craftsman. You know, add in a set of shelves over here, or, or build-ins, or, you know, the right type of trim, whatever you add in. But doing really good work um, and getting it done on time, is, is, is that's good work. That's how you run a good company. That's a great ethic to have. And I think that's really served you well, especially your clients, you know, because you under promise and over deliver. And um, I I do have a question, John, about um, you started off, you know, learning carpentry with your dad and you've done a lot of things through the military and working with Congress. Um, There's there's something my mom said when I would get into these moods as a teenager. She's like, you need to go dig in the dirt and come out with me and do some gardening. Now, I can't grow stuff for the life of me still, but there was something very therapeutic about doing some manual labor and just getting out there and getting dirty. Um, what was it that brought you back into like the carpentry? I know you said you grew up with it with your dad and like, do you feel like getting your hands dirty and doing manual labor has helped you with the, all of those other transition stresses that you had previously? Like no other. It's a great point, Cynthia. You are on point with that question. Absolutely. There is nothing like, and, well, first of all, running my own company, there's nothing like it. There's nothing that you're going to get in this world besides being a father. I think that's the only thing that's close to it. Um, there's nothing like being able to look at a scenario and saying, that is a hot mess. That is a pit of mud. And I'm going to make a house for mm-hmm. you. And it's not just going to be a house. When I get done, it's going to be done right. and be done to best practice. And it's going to be your home. And I'm going to make sure I protect your home, you know, with everything I do. So I, the physicality of what, you, what you're saying is so important. You know, I'm 38. I'm not a spring chicken any longer. I'm not some 20-year-old kid that's going to jump onto a work site and scream and listen to loud, crazy music and throw a hammer around and then drink a ton of beer at the end of the night. Those days are over. I'm interested in making a great name for myself and doing damn good work, mm-hmm. making sure it, it fits. But then also getting a next group of people in underneath me who can have good leadership. Um, Joshua, you'll probably understand this as well, but you know, I run them through the 11 basic principles of leadership when I get them onto a site. Yeah. You know, I explain, you know, we are going to train as a team. I'm, gonna, I'm going to seek and accept responsibility. I'm going to set the example. And I, I interviewed a buddy 
uh, a little while ago named Mike Harn. Um, he runs Anlon Construction. He does custom home builds in the Northwest. And it was something he said really hit me. And he said, the first time you see me yelling at someone, you go ahead. <laughs> the first time you see me disrespecting someone on a work site, you go ahead. And it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, I can be aggressive when it needs to be. I can absolutely dial that, turn that dial way to, 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 to a-hole. It's absolutely available. But I choose not to use it. And I choose not to use it because I need people's brains engaged. I need everyone on my site to be looking at the prize and to make sure it's done. And you know what? I'll fund them. That means I will give them a bonus if they do it on time and they get it done to spec. Absolutely. Those guys know that money's getting into their pocket extra, hmm. you know? And, and so with all that being said, the physicality of it, it releases, you know, kind of like basic training, going back to that thing. If the physical part isn't hard for you, then the mental is what's left. And, um, you know, at 38, I can still, I can keep up or outwork anyone I've met on the work side. I've not met someone that can outwork me yet. Um, and that has really produced a lot of respect and trust with people underneath me. Um, if you outwork a 22 year old and they get done and they go, Oh my God, that was a lot of work. And you go, yep. Now we're on to the next work site. And they go, Oh no, I thought we were done. Like, oh, <laughs> what are you talking about? We're just getting started. That's you so know, funny. um, you know, that, that brings, that breeds a lot of respect. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's, it needs to be, I need to be physical to be able to be sane in my life. You touched um, on And now I'm, yeah, yeah. now I'm six feet tall, cut, happy, physical, strong. I feel great. Nice. Yeah. You touched on something earlier that I was going to ask about was like, what, what did you take from the military that you brought into your job? But I mean, it sounds like, you know, just understanding how to motivate people, understanding how to get their respect, understanding how to connect with people and, and be mission driven and focused on the on the goal. And that that is in parallel to everything you do when you're part of a, a group or, or a platoon or whatever or a unit that, that those are all the similar traits. That's right. That's yeah. Very right. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's an interesting point you're making there because um, I had a different experience from some people in the military. I think some people in the military thought I did it and I'm a veteran and now I have my hat that I can wear and whatnot. And, and I choose not to try to put that on a lot just because I'm happy that I did it, but I've incorporated it into my life where it doesn't identify. It is part of my identity, but isn't who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done it and I've given my service and I can say I've done that. Um, and, and, you know, working in Congress was the same thing. I had to prove to myself that I was smart enough, you know, able enough, could work hard enough and all that other stuff. And I worked myself to the bone. And I, you know, I matched wits with Ivy League trained the best of the best. And uh, same thing with Intel. I had to do the same thing. And I've gotten to that point where I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> I don't have to prove myself any longer. I'm good enough. Um, That's great. And, yeah. And I think the military does that at one level or another. You're all on the same page. Just get the work done. And um, so that 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 is a piece I took. But I'll also say that, you know, when I got out of the military, I was really happy to be out. Um, and that's just to say that conventional military didn't fit me. When I was special operations, when that civil affairs group I was with, God, I love that. They yeah. asked questions. They thought, you know, mm -hmm. they said, how are we going to make this mission happen? And that's, I, I just didn't fit traditional military. I, I definitely fit um, non-traditional military thinking. Yeah. And, um, that helped me more than anything, because when you get a group of people together and you go, I don't have the answer, but we can figure it out. And we have to have the answer before the end of the day, yeah. what are we going to do? 
and you get three or four people who are engaged, who get it, who want the same mission, and they all put their brains together to make something happen, Jesus, you can do anything. If you have a team like that, if you have a 12-person team, which is the structure of a, you know, an A team or B team, you know, if you're an SF team or any other team, and you say, I want, here's a combined mission, how are we going to make this happen? You're going to find a way. And not only are you going to find a way, it's going to be damn good. And it, you know, that's the story of people learning when they get out of the military is they're not afraid anymore. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, what I've taken out of the military and I'll end by this, this diatribe of just saying that I, I learned to not be afraid and to ask questions that other people wouldn't ask. Why are we doing this? Why, why the hell would you do that? That right. makes zero sense. Right. You know, and, and that, that pisses a lot of people off, but being an entrepreneur and asking hard questions goes hand in hand. So, and in fact, I'm out in front of a job site right now, has a whole bunch of job, a whole bunch of water on the site. And I'm now digging out a sump pump oh, for this person's house. It's not part of the scope. Wasn't agreed on. There's no budget for it, but it has to get done. Yeah. You know, these people, you know, the house needs to be taken care of. Homeowners stopped by and they said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm putting a sump pump in your house. And they go, well, why are you doing that? I said, it has to be done. Yeah. You have too much water here. And the guy said, I know exactly what you're doing. I've been following you since Home Depot. <laughs> and I've been, you know, three lengths behind you. <laughs> Thank you for what you're doing and taking care of my house. It's amazing. I can't, I can't leave here looking you in the eye, not knowing that it's taken care of. Yeah. I can't just build a house on this wet area. And he goes, I appreciate that a ton. That's amazing. During your, those hard questions. During your process of being an entrepreneur throughout this journey, there, there are bound to be mistakes along the way, but what's that one thing that you think of that you think back and go, man, I fucked that up pretty good. If I, I'm never going to do that again, or it's going to scuttle everything I've worked for. What's that one thing you think you've, you've screwed up pretty bad. No, man, I got a hundred. Yeah. Which one do you want? <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's do this. Okay. So in, when I was student body president in Portland state, that was one of the silliest decisions I've ever made in my life. Yeah. That was, and, and I royally fucked that up. And I mean, not in a, not in a like, oh, you just kind of screw that up. No, I royally fucked that up because I looked at it as like I was back in war and the president of the university wanted to do some privatization of the university. And I, I got an immediate bad smell from that guy when I met him and I said, okay, you're the enemy. And, and everything I did, I chewed that guy's face politically. And the thing is, is that if I take a step back and see how, juvenile and childish and stupid that was i i could say you know i could have made that a thousand times better and said what's the one thing that i want out of this not everything i can't fight every battle right. what's the one thing that i want and then i would have worked through them through the entire year and then asked for that one thing and i would have gotten it and this this is a great learning experience that i've had in life if you ever get onto a board if you're ever working with a whole bunch of people you cannot lead that you let it be led by whoever's in charge and you support them as long as you can. And you decide one thing that you're going to fight for, one thing that you're going to make a difference with. And then at the very end, or however you go through that process, you ask for that one thing and you'll get it. Um, that's what I should have done. And, you know, it really hurt a lot of people because you get a lot of civilians you work for. Civilians are scared of military people. They don't get them. Yeah. Um, yeah. They think, oh, what, what, you know, you have PTSD. And it's like, no, I don't have PTSD. Or I'm not diagnosed. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I'm fine. So I'm fine. Funny. You know, whilst you're sweating, um, I did. <laughs> this is a funny story. I came back to from Iraq. You know, I jumped right into classes, and then I ended up taking this class at Portland State 
my first, one of my first classes, it was Arabic 101, right? So you think, oh, you know, because I, I knew some Arabic, I'd listen to my interpreters and I'd learned, you know, the Alif Ba, which is the alphabet in Arabic mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, one through 10, you know, basic stuff when I was, when I was in Iraq. And so I thought, oh man, this is a you know, shoe in. I'll really love Arabic. Well, the problem with that is in universities, the path of least resistance resistance is most of Middle Eastern people will take Arabic 101, 102, 201, 202, because then they can get an easy grade. So I plop myself down in a chair and look around and I'm surrounded by people in burqas, hijabs, um, you know, Muslim people a galore and people in the Middle East. And I just, oh, my God, that was a nightmare for me. I was sweating buckets. And uh, um, one person pulled me out of that. Her name's Erica. God bless that woman. I left that class. And uh, like, the, the, you know, first class, I'm just sweating like, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed. Blah, blah, blah. You know, all these stupid things you have in mind. Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, so I bolt out of that class to, you know, the second that time is over, they're like, OK, and I'm, I'm the first one out of that class. And I'm out of that class running because the teacher had asked in the class, you know, said, anyone know Arabic? And I said, yeah, shui, shui. You know, myself. And he goes, well, where'd you get your Arabic? Right. And I said, <laughs> uh iraq <laughs> and i see all these muslim people turn their faces oh. at me like in middle eastern right yeah. middle eastern isn't muslim muslim isn't the same middle eastern but they all turn their face at me and i was like oh this starts here it is this is my end right and uh so i bolt out of that class and i'm running away to get a cup of coffee and just like you know fight or flies kicking in and i turn this corner and i see this muslim girl run up to the corner we lock eyes and she looks at me and she starts sprinting at me in a hijab, full hijab, right? Running. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is it. I don't have a gun. I don't have a weapon. Okay. God, take me, you know, here it is. <laughs> and she runs up and she goes, my name's Erica. And she says her last name, which I won't say. She goes, my name's Erica. And it was a it was a Spanish name or, or a Hispanic name. And, and, and she goes, does that sound middle Eastern to you? And I was like, well, no, actually it doesn't. She goes, exactly. Not all Middle Eastern people are Muslim. Not all Muslims are Middle Eastern. And mm. uh, and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and she goes, you want to get a cup of coffee? And I was like, yeah, sure. Gahwa? She was like, Gahwa. I said, we want to get a cup of coffee. That's amazing. And we just, we sat down. And I'll end by saying this. We ended up getting the Student Veterans Group of Portland State and the Muslim Student Association every year to sit down, break bread, and have dinner together. And they would just talk about their mutual fears, mutual understandings, mutual disunderstandings of one another. Yeah. That was something I was so proud of. She piloted that, and so did I. And we had all these student veterans who were sweating, afraid, and Muslim students who were sweating and afraid, sitting in one another. And I read the Quran at the time, and it said, uh, you break, you cannot break bread with your enemy, so do not do that. So every time we did that, we I would say, everyone grab a piece of bread with your friend next to you who's a veteran to a Muslim whatever break bread with one another. And they would. And I said, now you cannot be enemies. And now we have a safe place to talk. Hmm. Welcome. Hmm. And uh, yeah. And so that's something I'm proud of, but the student veteran thing and being uh, in student leadership, man, I scared a whole bunch of people and I really pissed off that president, you know, and uh, that was, that wasn't the best of all times. I probably shouldn't have jumped into a public role that quick. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about, and then, you know, we only have a few minutes left, but I'm really curious, uh, you know, what's the future of, of, uh, of your company? Like, what do you hope this, where do you hope to take it in the next five to 10 years? Thank you so much for asking. I keep on getting off base. Away it's all from good, company. man. Um, it's what we're here it's for. All good I, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my company is really interesting. We do, uh, 
commercial and residential classic carpentry throughout the Northwest. So, you know, if you, we have to do windows and doors or we reframe out the side of a house, which is what we're doing right now, um, we just did some footings and um, post and beam structure underneath a commercial structure in uh, Northwest Portland, above Portland State. Um, you know, we, whatever the basic carpentry that needs to be done, whether it's structural or framing or even windows and doors and siding and whatnot. Where we're going as a company right now is I started my own podcast, quick plug for the Better Built podcast. Um, but we're adapting and finding the best practices here in the Northwest to build to. And we're building a book called The Northwest Building Best Practices. Um, it's a manual for how we build in this Northwest. And I'm looking for, I'm not trying to get huge. I have zero interest in having a thousand employees. I don't want to have 50 trucks. I want to have maybe five, uh, which I already have most of that equipment and vehicles and whatnot. But um, I'm just looking for excellent workers to work with excellent clients and to do excellent work. And that means on budget, on time, reasonable budgets and to work it through. And so that's where I want to go. Uh, ultimately, there's two questions that have to be asked, which I'll go back to our original thoughts that we had when we we're talking but what's the company for is it to you know to fulfill your life is your life your company and i say it's to fulfill your life and that means that everyone i bring in to the company the whole point about this company surviving and existing isn't just to make money on its own it's to make the lives of the people in the company better that means ultimately i'll end by saying this i want to pay for child care i want to make sure that people who are in my business and come to my business and know that their families are taken care of. And so we put in the best damn quality work we can um, within the parameters of what we agreed on uh, with the client. And we have an excellent company that looks to be the best in the Northwest, but we don't take on every client. We take on the ones that make sense and uh, the ones we can build relationships with. That's amazing. And that's the, com that's the company I want to live. That's I amazing. Wanna be in. Where can people find you online? Yeah, uh, it's a cavercarter.com or Caber Carter Construction. Um, that's my company website. That's a C A B E R, uh, Caber Carter. Um, you can also find us on the the Better Built podcast, of course, at Google and Apple. Nice. Um, uh, but with that being said, you can always just call me. You know, if you, anyone has a question, that the reason I have a small company is so I can make sure it's intimate and then it's done right. And then ultimately we have a relationship, not just, it's not just business. It's a relationship. You have someone to call and they can call me directly through the office, which is 503-303-1473. Uh, Love it. John, it was such a privilege to have you on the show and talk to you. And, and yeah, when things go back to normal, we'd love to grab a beer, coffee, whatever we, we can do here in, in Oregon. But, uh, but thanks Anytime. for coming on the program, man. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Cynthia. I really appreciate your guys' time and go get it. Please, uh, please help out the veterans community. I really appreciate you guys reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. Cynthia. Uh, yeah. Next, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Next week, uh, you know, we got a, another great guest and to close out the year, 2020 has been a great year. So excited that uh, you got to join us this year as our, our new co-host. So it's been a fun year. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's been great. Thanks for joining us, John. Yeah, my pleasure. And you guys you, take care. Hey, you guys, you've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast right here on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.